and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today's show, I have Dr. Stephen Taylor of the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And I brought him on the show today specifically to talk about a couple of emerging trends, specifically in fintech and in fintech education, given that he teaches. And with that, here's my interview with Dr. Stephen Taylor. Stephen, thanks for taking the time today. No problem, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about one of my passions here. Excellent. So Dr. Stephen Taylor of the New Jersey Institute of Technology, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Yes, I'm, I'm a um, professor about four years now, um, and I have a bit of an orthodox economic background where I worked in the finance industry for seven, eight years. I started at Bloomberg, Morgan Stanley had a bond desk, um, a couple hedge funds. And as part of that, um, I, I gained a lot of you know, practical programming experience, um, but also mixed with a lot of my, my technical training and math, math stats um, from, from school. And my main aim as a professor is just trying to bring this into the classroom um, and try, trying to get students oriented towards like what skills are in demand of the finance and fintech areas nowadays and making sure they're able to uh, both acquire those skills and then get their get their first job. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so ever emerging industry. So I have to imagine that, especially given that we're talking about kind of an overlapping field of technology and finance and human behavior, there's a lot of things that fintech really do touch upon. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. So tell me about your, uh, so you talked a bit about your history. What led you to teaching in the first place? I'd always always liked teaching. My my plan in grad school was to become a um, a professor. Always, I sort of I, I somehow wound up in the industry, um, but I, I stayed like within um, academia. That like I, I I taught an industry come industry practicum class at uh, University of Chicago in 2013. One at NYU at 2016, and I thought you know I really enjoyed that a lot more than my my day to day job <laughs> in the industry. And decided let's uh, you know let's let's make a jump out of finance industry and uh, academia. So specifically today, we're talking about emerging fintech trends you're seeing, and you get involved in industry quite a lot. So if you were to sum up kind of the biggest, let's, call, let's start with the biggest three altogether. What are the big three that you're kind of seeing happening around you at this point? Really watching um, insurance and, and actually writing a bit about peer-to-peer -peer insurance recently. I think it's um, it's an area that's just just starting. We're just at the cusp of uh, a lot of innovation is going to happen in the next three to five years. Um, asset management's a good number two. This the, the, the sort of progression from um, you know the first robo advisors to more you know customizable asset management arms. And um, I guess on on the third side, it's um, number three is is probably just the, the general sharing of trading strategies through platforms like like. Quant Connect, for example, where anybody can write a trade strategy read it. and not market it yourself. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so let's go back and unpack all three of those. So the first one is peer-to-peer -peer insurance. So this is an interesting one because I got to think, geez, this, you know, this has got to bump up against all kinds of regulation. Two people agreeing to indemnify each other or a group of people agreeing to indemnify a individual. Talk to me about the practical applications of how you've seen that done thus far. And if you can address the regulatory challenges, that would be great. But precise, I think this is this is the key issue from a practical point of view. Um, most most of my work on it's more of a, from a, like a theoretical design aspect. So that's the I, I don't know quite as much on the the regulation side. You can think of like think of the different styles of insurance. Sometimes we have within families and, and friends, for example. Like sometimes like within your within your immediate family, you know, you you implicitly insure yourself. You have an accident, you know, your your father might help you out with a few hundred dollars, and that, and it's a lot more cost effective to do that rather than have to go through a a claims process where there's you know half a dozen people involved and a lot of overhead associated with it, and I, I think peer-to-peer -peer insurance is like how do you make a middle ground between those? 
was do how do you sort of formalize the insurance in a way that it's 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 more than just family and friends agreement but how do you get rid of like you know the excessive overhead and costs we have with insurance systems a lot of real estate costs there's a lot of you know sales people involved that really don't add a lot of, of value um, what's what's really needed what can be automated that's kind of what the the peer to peer uh, model um, is is looking into as an insurance license advisor we'll say some agents do provide <laughs> great value. So basically, let's unpack that a bit. So yes, let's let's face it. Insurance in general is something that has to be sold. And when I think people are often shocked and amazed by the size of the insurance industry in general, uh, when you think about how many people are employed by it, how many people are are specifically on the distribution side, like is the the actual underwriting and then eventual you know call it the reinsurance space. The reinsurance space isn't that big really, but my God, is the is the distribution onerous. And I can see there being a tremendous amount of overhead, like you mentioned, that in the theoretical context, how does peer-to-peer solve for that? Is it just solely through digital distribution and lack of need for for, for sales agents? And and how would this product be discovered and and basically applied or or basically opted into by both sides of the transaction? And in my like ideal visualization of this that probably won't manifest itself for, for decades to come or anything remotely close to it is, is that um, like I, I would like to see it go to more of a setting where like you you get matched with people who have similar risk profiles as yourself. And this, this could be done like through you filling out a questionnaire, a survey, but like let's say you're buying automobile insurance, you know, based on your prior history, we can match you with people who are sort of comparable risk um, to you. And then if there's if there's slight variations in risk, like there, there are technical techniques that we've been working on to try to understand, like based on your risk profile, how much should you be contributing in oh. the sense of um, it could be premiums to a, to a single pool, or it could be another idea of peer-to-peer insurance is suppose like one member of a group gets in an incident, files a claim. Well, there, there's no, maybe there's no upfront payment, but you agree on the amount that's going to be compensated for every other member of the pool to that, to that person. So transactions only occur at the, at the claims level. And like you mentioned, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of additional like operational complexities to this. Like you, you need somebody to come in and, and evaluate, is, is the claim legitimate? Is, is there, is there fraud in there? Like there's, there's a certain amount of third party verification, verification that's needed. And the question is like, what's, what's the minimal amount of that we need to keep the fraud controllable in order to make the whole system work. And I think that's that's an open question and something that's uh, looking forward to, to working on more. Absolutely. I mean, I think I've already seen, I've seen one form of this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, I mean, this is in no way endorsement of the company, but have you seen any of this uh, company called Tontine Trust? I don't, don't haven't heard of them. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I think they're out of, I think they're out of Gibraltar because they're, they're blockchain based, but it is uh, basically a digital taunting, which is for those of you who are not students of Molesky like me, basically is a, is a type of, an, of annuity arrangement whereby everybody puts money into the pot and the proceeds are distributed, the ga- their gains are distributed and a kind of assumed lifetime distribution of the principles distributed to only people who survive the period, right? So essentially, again, it's, it's basically, it's crowdsourced, for lack of a better term, it's crowdsourced annuities, right? Just like you buy an annuity from a, t- from a typical agent, it pays you for life. If you lose, if you die early, you lose the bet, everyone else wins the bet, but this one kind of crowdsources it through a blockchain technology. So I think there's an application there to what you're, what you're talking about. But when I start thinking about the extension of that to, like you said, home and auto insurance, that's interesting. That's a lot of variables there. And again, essentially, I think it would be, you're essentially creating almost digital online cooperatives of people willing to share this risk. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think it's, it's a good way to characterize it. And I, I like these, these points you made of like, like, let's make, you know, let's make the claims history publicly available on a blockchain, or at least a bit publicly available within the group. But generally speaking, the more, the more transparency you add to any system, the better it is overall, the lower the costs go down. So there's a lot of ideas that can be like this can be integrated in. Excellent. 
So that's the first trend. Let's talk about the second one you mentioned, which is uh, basically kind of the evolution of the digital investment side. And of course, we had you know the big waves of the robo advisors coming in, threatening to deep to destroy the traditional models. And I actually say they they ended up doing us a big favor because they showed us how broken our onboarding systems were, <laughs> and some of our co customer experience was. And now everybody's either fixed that problem or continues to fix it. So everybody they, they raise the they raise the stakes for the entire industry, which is great. But what are you seeing as kind of we'll call it the next generation of, of digital investment advice that is? Yeah, and I, what I'm seeing and uh, what I hope to see more of in the future is I, I think of like like Wealthfront, Betterment are probably the the prototypes for sort of like new startup robo advisors, and they they both had really good ideas. Like let's look over all ETFs. Let's find the ones that are lowest price, um, high, lowest tracking error, the highest quality securities. Let's form a portfolio of these based on Markowitz portfolio theory generalizations, like traditional asset allocation management ideas. And let's automate tax loss harvesting. They both more or less did the same thing. But let's do that at a, at a fifth to a tenth of the fee of a traditional financial advisor. And there's a really good argument to make, to make for that, but it's pretty much hands off. Like You just kind of fill out a survey and then it's done, right? You, you have very little um, ways to actually go in and, and adjust according to what your beliefs might be. And I, what, I, what I think is sort of like gen two of these is, you know, let's extend from like by, by analogy and asset asset management, like let's extend from, from Markowitz portfolio theory to like the black Litterman mile or model where I can put in some, my information on what I think certain securities are going to do in terms of, you know, expected risk and return over the next next year. Let me customize it a bit. Let me choose what strategies I want to put. Let me, let me maybe even put add my own strategy to what you're providing. I'm providing tax loss harvesting infrastructure, but I'm going to put the portfolios in there. There's a lot of ideas along these lines that can uh, be used to build build the next version. So essentially, moving from the template version of a portfolio to greater degrees of customization versus on personalization. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've spoken to a couple of startups in that space, in particular, uh, one of them, more of an advisor tool. Uh, Vise was a previous guest on the podcast. And of course, Patrick O'Shaughnessy is through O'Shaughnessy Wealth has been marketing Canvas, which is direct indexing and with greater degrees of customization. I think that's absolutely right. I think we're, especially when you look at the ever evolving consumer and how they're treated by other industries in that it's all about, everything's about customization and personalization to whatever it is the heck you want and no right or wrong. And it's not a surprise that investment is extending into that arena altogether. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And um, I, I would like to see like, you know, the individual investor being able to be basically like what institutional hedge fund investor is five years ago to the day where like, there's certain limitations put on you, but now you're going to have hundreds of different, thousands of opportunities to, to get into eventually. And it's going to be a, a better space for, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's just in a lot of it, I spent a lot of time defending uh, ESG investing, not from a, you can debate the fees altogether. You can debate the costs or benefits of it altogether. But, you know, if it's personal preference, just respect the personal preference. My goodness, right? If someone doesn't want to own, you know, Walmart because they, they had a terrible experience working there as a teenager, then they don't have to, they shouldn't have to own Walmart if they want to own the entire S&P 500. Should be able to carve things off. Whatever, whatever the reason, whatever they're fancy, as long as they're willing to accept it, it's informed consent. So that's the second trend. Take me through the third one. And I have to refresh my memory. <laughs> Third friend was indeed. I, I think it's um, just sort of the growing of uh, like retail investor trading strategy development and being able That's to right. have platforms like market these to the, to the broader broader public. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, we <laughs> doing this well after the entire GameStop fiasco and, you know, the Wall Street bets fiasco. I mean, that's that's like a very crude version of it, right? Because we're talking about just simply, hey, pile onto this stock because of X, Y, Z and do the short squeeze. But you're talking about something far more sophisticated, right? You're talking about like, you know, the sharing of, of quantitative algorithms and whatnot for, for trading. Is that not the case? 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think the, the prototype for this right now is a platform called Quant, Quant Connect, where you can basically, like, they provide data infrastructure, they provide backtesting infrastructure, and you basically just code up your algorithm in, in Python, and they'll they'll give you performance measures. And like for your example, like GameStock, like if I just sort of cherry pick results on GameStock when it went booming, and I claim I have a Sharp Ten strategy that's going great, and I advertise that, like hopefully people can sort of look into this and get a little feel for it before you just you know throw capital behind it because of an, analytics like what they would they would provide. Interesting. Again, just raising the stakes for what it takes to actually try to squeeze alpha out of the market. My goodness. So those are the those are the big three. So I mean, that's I think all of them fascinating. I think many of them resonate with the with the listeners. Let's talk about the other challenge you face, which is in education and getting people ready to basically be ready to work at firms like this. So how has the education of people in finance changed in light of the proliferation of fintech? We've definitely been going more towards um, or in our, our curriculum more to the computer science side, like getting students in the business schools to start coding. Before it would just be like you you go to business school, you learn Excel, and then you're basically done. But now that's that's insufficient for a lot of entry-level jobs. You have to have a scripting language. Um, I, I focus a lot on Python, some other faculty focus on R, for example, but by the time you finish school, you should be able to code. And there's a lot of like curriculum change. It used to be like, you know, you just, you would look through PowerPoint presentations, you would take a multiple choice test, you would do this 20 times, then you get a degree. That's insufficient for preparation now for a lot of the students. Like they, they need to be able to go onto the job, be able to learn on their own, acquire new tech skills that are constantly changing. And so I, we try to integrate this into curriculum, make them learn how to learn during the course of their uh, their education and get them that first job is my what I view my, my primary goal is as a faculty member. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's uh, technology and software are eating the world and they're slowly starting to eat the world of financial education. I'll say that much. Here's a question for you. Now you're spending a lot of time in Python. How much or have you seen at all the proliferation or use of any of the newer no-code platforms that are out there? I've seen a bit of it in um, the industry, especially like on like the front end, like website. Um, a lot of no code platforms, I think, are are quite appropriate for that, where you can get a lot done with a very little work. And the, the issue is like the platforms are almost always somewhat rigid. Like you, you can operate within their framework, but you can't really you know customize to your to your heart's delight. Um, whereas a programming language, you can, but it involves a lot more know how and a lot more skills skills building up. Um, and I, I think like to your point of like Python, I think Python's right in the middle of that, where it's it's a relatively easy language to learn. Like I, I see students time and time again really go from nothing to proficient in a month or two months. And it's quite, quite stunning to, to see that. That's and because they're students building. and they have the time to learn. Okay. For those of us, <laughs> good luck finding that time we have two kids, but okay. Continue. Sorry. Exactly. And again, the students like, and these are the ones like, they're basically, you know, they're doing it 40 hours a week for two months and like nothing but that. And then you get you get to the point where you can go from ideas to code to product um, re- really rapidly. And um, I, I think that's a better a better place to be in than just learning, say, a, a dozen different tools um, that are sometimes good in their own right. But like getting that, that software skill is really you know, where, where the, the bang for the buck is in the job market right now. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, I think the other thing that people don't take into consideration is that the, I've done a, a tiny little bit of programming and it's a lot of it, I got to say, just it's about learning to problem solve, isn't it? It's different than traditional financial education because you have to worry about creating structures and logic and repetitive structures. Like it's it's a completely different skill set and muscle to, to kind of flex. So if anything, I think they're just making themselves more complete learners altogether. I agree with you there. Yeah. How, how do you take a big problem, break it up into modules, solve each of the modules and then patch it all together like a puzzle? That's that's more or less what, what programming is. And at the end of the day, if you can do it well, you can automate basically all the tedious aspects of your, your job and life away and then focus on the ones that really require you know human beings and, and thought and intellectual thought. And that's uh, it's a good thing to learn for everybody. I agree. Absolutely. I feel like I just missed it being a little bit too old for it. But what are you going to do? 
Never too late. Never too late. <laughs> never too late to learn. Just need the time. That's the problem. But uh, I'll stick to my no code platforms for now. And I'll wait for them to get better for now. That is. So uh, before we wrap up, and this has been great, because you know, I think we covered a fair amount of ground and, and how fintech is having such an impact. I have three questions I ask everybody. So I want to throw them at you and see how what, what comes back. So the first question is, if you had one wish for something you could change in your role, and you have various roles because you consult and do various other things in your role or in, in the industry as a whole, what would it be? One thing in the industry, probably the simpler regulation overall. I, I think of like, you know, like Dodd Frank when it comes out, great, great idea in spirit, but it's written by a couple hundred lawyers. There's 500 rules. Nobody really has any idea what's going on. I think good regulation should be like math axioms. Like here are four things that are simple. Everybody understands, implement that. And then the repercussions are a more robust system. I would love to see something along those lines. Yeah. So that's the difference between a principles-based and rules-based system. And you guys seem to really like your rules because it's easier to get around them. And the, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, Dodd-Frank, yeah, a great concept for protection, but I think we've seen the net impact in terms of the decreasing number of publicly traded companies out there in the market and the increased, the expansion of, of private investments that have existed. And you can draw a line on that trend line going right back to the implementation of Dodd-Frank. So it might be time to revisit that and rethink it, especially given modern technology and modern systems for verification and, and security around, around publicly traded com- companies. But that's my rant. Second question for you, and this one's a little bit different. Normally, we're talking about uh, the biggest challenge that uh, people experience within their own companies to get where they are. What do you think the biggest, in your case, I'm going to give it differently. What do you think the biggest challenge facing fintechs and students looking to get fintech jobs is going to be in the coming years? I think like the, the biggest challenge in terms of like getting a job for a student is really being able to like convince your, your hiring manager that you're able to take a deeper dive into ideas and you're able to be like, um, you're able to take on projects and have ownership around them. For example, with Python, the, to your, the question you mentioned before, like there's a lot of people that can go, you know, download scikit-learn package, do model.fit, model.predict, and then claim they're an expert in that particular model. But then when you start as a hiring manager, like quizzing them about like, what, what is an SVM? What are some of the ideas about SVM? Why is it better than other classification algorithms? Um, and they can't answer anything. Like that's a problem. So I find with the students, like you really need to take a deeper dive. You need to be able to build, build things from scratch, under, at least understand all the components of what you're doing. And that's where, where ultimately mastery comes from. Yeah. I mean, it's, I always love people's concept of proficiency. One of my favorite questions to ask in interviews, well, actually favorites, what the litmus test questions I ask is, you know, they'll always, everybody will put down that they're, you know, proficient in Microsoft office. And the first question I'll ask is, okay, give me an example of the most complex macro you've ever built. And I get a blank stare. Okay. Give me a example of the most complex, the complex formula you've ever put in Excel. And they're just like, some like, you know, like, so there's, there's a difference between being able to open it up and do the basics and actually being proficient and understanding why it is you're doing things. And I, I think that's, that's just a general challenge in education altogether is, is getting people to understand the why and not just go through the motions of it. And I say, this is someone who's spent some time teaching. So last question I have for you is of all the stuff you see and all the th- stuff you've been involved with, like what excites you the most about what it is you're doing and basically gets you up in the morning to keep on, to keep on fighting the good fight. What excites me is, is definitely fulfillment I take in student success. Um, I, I, I've had um, three or four students over the last two or three years go from um, basically like nothing, um, not not very, not not the greatest high school student, but was was okay, motivated to like one either an Oxford PhD program, one's going to Brown, um, one's going to CMU and Berkeley, and it's just um, being able to to sort of take people who have some ambition who haven't been guided on the, in the right path, and then 
to show them the way and then to see, and ultimately I, I, we're the, we're guides as the teachers, right? But you got to do it on your own and then watch them just sort of go work really hard at it and then realize that goal. Um, for, for me, that's, that's the most fulfilling feeling in the world. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade any, you know, high comp finance position for that. And it's a hope to keep, keep doing that, um, in the, in the future. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't fault you for the, for the very small taste of that I've had for my part-time teaching. I totally get how fulfilling that is. You catch up with them years later and you've, you've accomplished all that. And you're thankful for what I did with you. Oh my God. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the good side. That's definitely the good side of teaching. All right. Well, I will say this much, uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time today. Sincerely appreciate it. And where can people find you and your works? And I know again, like all professors, you publish thoughts and, and papers on stuff. Where can they find that? Yeah, sure. I'll, I put most of my, my LinkedIn. If you just Google Stephen Taylor and JIT LinkedIn, that's fine. Um, at SSRN is our preprint server. I have all my papers there and feel free to reach out anytime. It's um, smt at ngit.edu. Happy to, to talk to talk, especially about finance, fintech related things. Yeah, I love your, I love your email. Just a lot of letters don't spell anything. <laughs> anyway, so thank you very much. Appreciate it. So that was Dr. Stephen Taylor of the New Jersey Institute for Technology. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation and got to see basically a couple of the more emerging trends that are happening. And uh, I'm very curious to see how group source insurance is actually going to work in the future. And if you know people who are students, I've said this before, to everyone who would ask me for advice on what, how, what their kids should be taking, learn to code. I should not be adamant enough about that. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.